But if you would, turn to Luke 18. Luke 18, and I'll tell you the verse in just a moment. This past January, an organization called the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists assembled the media for a major announcement. At a press conference, this group of scientists reported that they had decided to adjust what they refer to as the doomsday clock. This symbolic clock, which has been maintained by this organization since 1947, is meant to be a visual representation of how close we are to the end of the world. According to these self-declared experts, the end of the world is represented by 12 midnight. And this past January, they decided to adjust the hands of the clock to move the hands 30 seconds closer to midnight, such that the clock now stands at two and a half minutes before the end of the world. One of the representatives who announced the clock change wrote this in an op-ed piece in the New York Times. Never before has the bulletin decided to advance the clock largely because of the statements of a single person. But when that person is the new president of the United States, meaning Donald Trump, his words matter. Apparently, the words of North Korea's Kim Jong-un were the mullahs in in Iran who threatened the world with nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons on a daily basis. Apparently, their words don't seem to matter. Now, according to this organization, the foremost threat to world peace is a man named Donald Trump. And so they adjusted their doomsday clock thinking they know the end of the world, where the Bible says no man can know, they adjusted their doomsday clock when Donald Trump had been in office for just six days. For the purpose of comparison, let's think back eight years, back to when Barack Obama was in the first days of his presidency. And what is remarkable is that President Obama was in office just 11 days when, guess what? He was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, which he subsequently won, despite the fact that he had done nothing to broker peace anywhere in the world. Now, for our purposes this morning, what we think of the politics of either man, that's unimportant. But what is significant for our study today is that human beings consistently project onto their leaders certain preconceived notions and certain expectations, especially when those expectations have to do with peace and security. And that is precisely the mindset of the crowds who accompany Jesus into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. As Jesus arrived in Jerusalem on that day we call Palm Sunday, many had projected onto him 
all their hopes, all their expectations for peace. They were convinced that this Jesus was the one who would finally bring them the hope and the change they wanted. And if that slogan reminds you of something, it's intentional. What they were hoping for was that they would finally have a leader that would bring them peace. The change that they wanted was that this leader would banish the Romans from Israel and they would finally be left in peace. And so they determined that by throwing their support behind Jesus of Nazareth, he would return them to their former glory. We might say that they wanted Jesus to make them great again. If that slogan sounds familiar, it's intentional. And so many of the people who shouted the praises of Jesus, who glorified his triumphal entry, behaved in such a way that they revealed they were not interested in who Jesus was. They were most interested in who they expected him to be, who they wanted him to be. But as we know, it didn't take long for these same people who projected their expectations onto Jesus to grow disappointed, to grow disillusioned. When they realized that this Jesus had not come to be the conqueror they expected. And when that happened, they were quick to abandon him. And they actually turned him over to the very Romans they hated. As we come to the text today that describes the people's reaction to Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, I believe that the key point of this text, the the, the, the lesson that we are to learn is that it is essential that we embrace Jesus for who he is, not for what we expect him to be. But tragically, the vast majority of Israel insisted that Jesus be the leader they wanted. They expected him to bring peace into Israel. And the ironic thing is, is that Jesus did come to bring peace. After all, he is the king of peace and glory. The problem is, they wanted a peace according to their plan, according to their expectations, rather than what he came to do. The people were convinced that peace could only be won militarily. And to accomplish this, they expected that Jesus would actually lead them into battle against the Romans and rid the Romans from their land. When the true reason for his coming is so that all who believe in him might have peace with God. But Jesus knew what awaited him in Jerusalem. His appointed time had come. His mission ordained for him from before the beginning of the world had now come. Look, please, at Luke 18 
And go please to the 31st verse. Again, Luke 18, verse 31. And at Luke 18, verse 31, he, Jesus, took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished, for he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him, that is, whip him, and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. And so as Jesus prepares for his entry into Jerusalem and all that would occur in the week to follow, there will be no surprises for Jesus. He knows exactly what awaits him in Jerusalem. All will occur according to the divine plan. Let's go, please, to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19 and the 30th verse. As they're on their way to Jerusalem, Jesus gives instruction to two of his disciples. He says this to, his two, to two of his disciples at verse 30. Luke 19, verse 30. Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Again, we see that there are no surprises for Jesus. He peers into the future, he sees the animal, he sees its owner, and provides the necessary response to procure the animal. And as he does so, he's not only peering into the future, he is now fulfilling an ancient prophecy that foretold the details of his arrival into Jerusalem. Let's consult the insert that was in the bulletin, that passage from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 and following, and I'll be using the NIV translation. And in that passage from Zechariah 9, 9, we read this. The Old Testament prophet writes this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The people were familiar with this prophecy from Zechariah. We're probably familiar with it because we've heard it several times in past Palm Sunday messages, but they were very familiar with it. And the reason they were so familiar with this passage is because it foretold the coming of the Messiah. It was a messianic prophecy. And so when the people saw Jesus ride into town on a young donkey, they said, yeah, here's our king. This is the one that was foretold by the prophet. But there was a problem in the way they applied this prophecy. And the problem is they saw 
what they wanted to see. And I think we're all familiar with that concept, seeing what we want to see. It may happen in relationships, it might happen in buying a used car, but we tend to focus on the things that we want to see rather than what's actually there. And so they focused on what they wanted to see, meaning they focused on Zechariah's words that speak of salvation. Zechariah says, see, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation. Now, we know what kind of salvation the people wanted. They wanted to be saved from the oppression of the Romans. And so we know the kind of king that the people wanted because we've heard it many times before. They wanted a conquering king. They wanted a king like David. They wanted a king who would win the peace by the sword. They wanted the Romans expelled. They wanted to be restored to their former glory. They wanted a king of peace and glory. And that is exactly who Jesus came to be, the king of peace and glory, but not according to their expectations. In a very real and tragic way, the people were blinded by their expectations. And what they overlooked was a key part of the prophecy, the part that identified what kind of salvation this king would bring. You see, he would come righteous, this king. He would be a righteous king. And a king who comes righteous would do the work according to God's plan, right? A righteous king wouldn't do the work according to man's plan, but according to God's plan. And so this righteous king had come to conquer, but not to conquer Rome, but to conquer sin and death. In fact, through the gospel, he did conquer Rome, didn't he? They lost everything because of the gospel. But more on that another time. Look again at what Zechariah says. He comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. That doesn't sound like a, a conquering king with a sword to me. He comes gentle and riding on a donkey. And so the people overlooked. They completely ignored this part of the passage, this prophecy that their king would come gentle. Now, it's important for us to know and remember that it was universally understood in this culture and in this time that when a king came riding into town or into the city riding a donkey, that was a symbol of peace. You see, if he had come into the town or city riding on a horse, that would have been a symbol of war. But the fact he came on a colt, the foal of a donkey, a young donkey, indicated that he meant peace. A modern equivalent would be the difference between General Eisenhower arriving in a city either on a tank or a, a golf cart that's decorated with daisies. That is... That's how significant the difference is between a, a young colt and a war horse. Jesus comes in on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He comes to Jerusalem to offer peace, but this would be a special kind of peace, peace with God, a peace that would not be won 
by the spilling of blood of soldiers, but the spilling of his own blood on a Roman cross for the forgiveness of sin. Let's return, please, to Luke chapter 19 and verse 35 and continue a little further into the account. At Luke 19, verse 35, it says, Then they, meaning the disciples, brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Today we would call that the red carpet treatment. They threw their cloaks, their, their clothes, not their you know, inner clothes, their cloaks. They threw their cloaks, their clothes, on the road. By this time, Jesus was well known throughout the entire region. Many had seen or heard about his miracles and his powerful teachings. And consequently, when he arrived in Jerusalem, he was given a welcome that was fit for a king. This spreading of the cloaks on the road, that was only reserved for kings. And in addition to the cloaks that were laid on the road, the other gospel writers tell us that the people cut branches and put them before Jesus. The Gospel of John specifically tells us that people took palms and laid those on the ground. That's why I laid the palms on the ground uh, when you were coming in, but I see everybody picking them up because they were too, too troubled to see the palms on the ground, but that's where they belong. People laid the palms on the ground to give them a to give the king, the coming king, the red carpet treatment. That was a reception reserved only for kings. Let's look at verse 37 and see what happens as people welcome their coming king. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent, the downward slope of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And they're singing this. They're shouting it and singing it as he comes into the city. Jesus is now descending this steep hill, and I was shocked when I stood on it how steep that hill really is. It goes down the Mount of Olives, this huge olive, uh, uh, I think it's an orchard, it's an olive field full of olives, and there's this really steep hill that goes to the valley below. And then on the other side of the valley is a flattened plateau, and on top of that plateau sits the walled city of Jerusalem. Jesus is coming down the Mount of Olives. He will come through the short valley and then into the gates through the, the, uh, the walled city of Jerusalem. And as Jesus travels along this road leading down the Mount of Olives, many people had heard in advance, the word had spread rapidly that Jesus, their, their king, was coming, their Messiah. And so people were lining the roads. They were uh, amidst the olive trees, many were probably standing on the stone walls that were along this, this ancient road. They were shouting. They were shouting. 
excited that he was coming. And in addition to the people who lined the roads, there were many who were on the road with Jesus. They were coming into Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover. And I think that the people who were with Jesus in particular, they couldn't contain their excitement. They were shouting. They were celebrating the arrival of their Messiah. They were shouting and celebrating all they expected he would do. Luke tells us in verse 37, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. These mighty works, these miracles, as some translations have it, these miracles included the news that this Jesus of Nazareth could raise the dead back to life as he had done for Lazarus. He could take a loaf of bread, a couple of fish, and feed thousands of people. Who better to be their king? He could feed the armies of Israel, and if they fell in battle, their king could raise them back to life. They were going to be undefeated, undefeatable. The Romans would be no match for them. Who better to fulfill their expectations? And so they cried out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now I'd like to focus our attention on the second part of their song where, it says, where they're singing, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, if we look more closely at that, we discover there's a detail there we might not have expected. We notice they're singing about peace in heaven and glory in the highest in heaven. Now, that will seem strange because, what we, because we know that what they really want is peace in Jerusalem. They want to be free of the Roman military. They want to be left alone. They want to be left in peace. And so we might ask, why are they going on about peace in heaven? What's, what's that all about? Well, in order to capture the significance of their song, we need to be aware of a type of singing that is recorded all through the Bible. And this kind of singing is called antiphony. And what antiphony means, it's a fancy word for a call and response. So sometimes, like we'll sing one, um, the ladies will sing us a verse, and then the guys will sing a verse. That's all through the Bible. It's called antiphony. And so the people singing on that Palm Sunday, they're singing on this parade route. They're singing in response. But the, that raises the question: they're, they're singing in response to what? Who, who sang first? Well, to answer that, we'll have to think back to the night of Jesus' birth, when the angels appeared to the shepherds who were watching over their flocks at night. And I think you can recall what the song was that was sang by the heavenly host. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill to men. You hear that? On earth, peace. And so here's the point. At Jesus' birth, the angels are singing peace on earth, and now as Jesus is entering Jerusalem, 
The crowds on the parade route, they're singing in response back to heaven, saying peace in heaven. And so the overall effect is this. The crowds are celebrating the long-awaited Messiah who has now come into Jerusalem, and they're declaring their blessings of peace on heaven because they are now sure that peace is coming to earth, meaning Jerusalem. And what did they expect? That Jesus was going to rid them of the Romans and they would be left in peace. And the thing is, is that Jesus did come to bring peace on earth, but not the kind of peace that comes from the absence of war. Jesus is very clear on this subject. He says that we will have war, and there will be rumors of war. But he says at John 16.33, he says this about himself. Listen, in me you shall have peace. Jesus came to bring the most important kind of peace, the peace, the kind of peace that can never be taken away, the kind of peace that once we have it, it will be eternal, and that is peace with God. We long for peace on this earth, and there's no reason why we shouldn't work for peace on this earth, but as long as there is sin on this earth, we will never have peace on this earth. The only way we shall have peace is peace with God, and we shall have that for eternity. Now, let's consider who's in this crowd. Luke describes them as the whole multitude of disciples. Now, let's recall that the word disciples literally means learners. And we can deduce that there are three kinds of people in this crowd. And what we will discover is that although many in the crowd thought they were Jesus' disciples, most were not his true disciples. And so the first group that we'll refer to is the group that we'll consider as Jesus' genuine disciples. I mean, they're not just his learners, but they have put their faith in him. They are convinced that Jesus is Lord. When Jesus walked on water, when he stilled the storm, Matthew tells us that those who were in the boat worshipped him and said to Jesus, truly, you are the Son of God. They heard the authority of Jesus' teaching, and Peter spoke for all the apostles, at least the 11, when Peter said this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. And as we know, if there was any lingering thought, any question that haunted them at this point, every doubt would be completely removed when they saw with their eyes and touched with their hands the resurrected Lord. There's a second group that was on that parade route, and they exist today as well. And by far, this is the largest group. This is the group whose interest in Jesus is conditional, whose hearts say, as long as you give me what I want, as long as you meet my expectations 
then I will be your disciple. Then I will follow you. But as soon as something goes south, I'm on my way. Now, these people, they were laying their cloaks and their branches on the road because this Jesus was the man of the hour. But it was this group who, when faced with disappointment, when they discovered that Jesus wasn't going to measure up to their expectations, they were the first to turn on Jesus and shout, crucify him. While the second group is conditional, there's a third group in the crowd. And this group is outright antagonistic toward Jesus. And this third group is explicitly described by Luke at verse 39, if you could look there. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, they find all these claims and all these accolades about Jesus offensive. They are offended by all this talk about Jesus. And so they want the followers of Jesus silenced. And guess what? It's no different today. Those who are offended by Jesus and the truth that he brings, that there is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved, they want this talk silenced. But Jesus makes it abundantly clear that the praises of the people were warranted. They were right to praise him as king. Why? Because he is the Lord of peace and of glory. Although even his followers, including the 11, did not yet fully understand completely his mission at this point. And they would not completely understand it until after the resurrection, they were right to praise him. Look, please, at verse 40. Jesus answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Isn't that a great line? Jesus employs a bit of hyperbole, a, a bit of exaggeration to illustrate his point. He says that if the people were not to praise him, these stones that are laying on the side of the road, they'll shout out. Jesus is saying that these inanimate objects, these rocks, are better able to recognize the significance of Jesus' arrival than the hardened hearts of those who oppose him. These Pharisees who are representative of all who oppose Christ then and now, they, they stand in ignorance. They're demonstrating that rocks know better than them. The situation that the Pharisees represent cannot be more tragic, especially as we witness the next scene. Now, generally, when the triumphal entry account is preached on this day, it is usually here that we as preachers generally finish the message. That it is, it's true and right that we should worship him. But I believe it's important for us to go a little farther into the text. Because while we have heard the good news of Christ's triumphal entry, we cannot ignore the fact that in this account there is also bad news. The good news is that Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem marks the beginning of the Passion Week. By the week end, Jesus will have completed his mission. He will have given his life on the cross for the remission of sins to all who believe. 
and by his resurrection, he will give definitive evidence that all who believe in him shall rise again to life. But as he arrives on Palm Sunday, it is also clear that along with the good news, there's also bad news. Here are the people, they're, they're singing his praises, they're worshiping God as he approaches Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. And there in the midst of all this celebration, Jesus is overwhelmed with grief. Let's go to verse 41, please. Verse 41. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. Think of the contrast between those two things. The people are are yelling with joy and they're singing his praises. And as Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he begins to weep. There are only two times in the scriptures when we're told that Jesus wept. Once when he stood in front of his friend Lazarus' tomb, who he rose back to, to life. The others here, as he overlooks Jerusalem, there's no doubt he grieved over his friend, but the grief here is much more profound. Because he is not just weeping over the city of Jerusalem, he's weeping over an entire nation. And mark this, he's not just weeping over the nation of Israel, he's weeping over the souls of every nation, of every generation of people who will not embrace him as Lord. Who because of the hardness of their hearts will refuse to receive him, to open up the gates of their hearts and let him in. And because they refuse him, will never know the kind of peace the lasting peace that only Jesus Christ can bring. Jesus says at verse 42, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Oh, you can hear the the sorrow in Jesus' words, the grief. His eyes are filled with tears. He's weeping. If only you had known what you passed up. Jesus is in effect saying, your eyes are so focused on the present. Your eyes are so focused on what you want that you have blinded yourself to the eternal gift that is available to you. You are passing up the opportunity. Here is a brief and fleeting opportunity to have the most precious gift you could possibly have, and that is peace with God, and you're letting it slip away. And so Jesus weeps. He weeps for the souls of countless millions through generation after generation. Jesus was fully aware that his own countrymen were about to give him up to deliver him to the Romans and to the cross, and people do it today. People are saying, I, this is not the Savior I want. I've got a different Savior in mind for me. I don't want, I'm not interested in this Jesus. And deliver him right up to the cross. These people want an earthly peace. They want an earthly prosperity. They want the deliverance from the now. And so they overlook the eternal peace that Jesus offers. 
And so they reject the everlasting peace that only He can bring. And because of their rejection, Jesus describes a judgment that will come upon Israel. He says this at verse 43. For day, verse 43, for days will come when you, uh, upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and they will level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know. Listen, you did not know the time of your visitation. The people had long awaited a Messiah. And now that he had come, there were some as individuals who would embrace him. But as a nation, they rejected him. And so Jesus now spells out the judgment that Israel had invited upon itself. He gives them the bad news. The bad news that their choice as a nation would bring upon themselves. The temple... Jerusalem, and even the entire nation of Israel would be destroyed. And we know that occurred, just as he said. In 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the temple. They did not leave one stone upon another. It was completely leveled. Jerusalem was burned. And for the most part, the the nation of Israel ceased to exist after 70 AD and would not exist for another 2,000 years. Not until by God's power in 1948, Israel was reconstituted as a nation. Never before had a nation ever been reborn. Not until Israel was reconstituted in 1948. That's a miracle. That is a miracle. And it can only be attributed to the hand of God. And for those who have eyes to see, it is obvious that this is in preparation to the second coming of Christ. He's near. He is so near. And when he comes again, he will judge the whole world, the living and the dead. But here in Luke, Jesus makes absolutely clear the reason for the judgment on Jerusalem. It is stated at the very end of verse 44. Because, Jesus says, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, some translations use the word coming, and both translations are right because they both stress that Christ's coming requires a response. But the word visitation is the more literal translation, and it also helps to signal a keen sense of urgency. And the reason for this urgency is because Christ's first coming was, technically speaking, a brief visit. A brief visit. Israel had just a brief window of opportunity, a brief window of time to decide whether they would receive Jesus for who he is or turn him away because he did not live up to their expectations. In a similar way, each and every person today has a very brief opportunity to respond to Jesus Christ. And the reason I say brief is because of the simple fact that none of us are promised tomorrow. Time is short. There may be someone here today whose time of decision is this very moment. We must each decide 
whether we are going to let Jesus into the gates of our heart or we're going to turn him away because he doesn't meet our expectations. Listen, it is possible to sit in a church, this church or any other church, week after week, year after year, and not take the opportunity to genuinely and actually receive him as Lord. And please don't think this is a small matter. For the Lord of heaven and earth, he weeps, he grieves for every soul that does not, does not respond to his offer of everlasting peace. We will never have peace on this earth. Things will never work out according to our expectations. Our only hope is Christ and Christ alone. And so it requires a decision to open the gates of our hearts and let him in, to confess our sin and ask him to come into our hearts. I imagine that we've all had that, that, that occasion. We've all had that occasion where we've made some decision or we've made a decision and things came out wrong or we failed to make a decision course of our life change forever. What I'm trying to say is we all must make this decision and make it before it comes to a place where we regret having not made it. Because this moment may not pass again. Perhaps somebody has asked you before, will you give your heart to Christ? And you thought, well, you know, I'll do it some point in the future. Now's not the time. We don't know if we have another opportunity. None of us knows when this offer will expire. None of us are promised another day on this earth. And so I, I implore you, if you have not yet received him, let this be the day to confess your sin and embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you will have peace for all eternity. On this Palm Sunday, let be, this be the day that you open up the gates of your heart and let the King in, that he would be the Lord of your life and the Savior of your soul.